0: Tonight, so that should mean that it's recording now. So, this term we're going to look together at Isaiah chapter 40 to 55. Uh, that's kind of part of the second half of Isaiah. Thanks, Rob. Is it recording? Little jumpy thing going on there. Perfect. That's great. That means it's... great. <laughs> I I can talk louder. That's definitely talk louder. That's no problem. Tomorrow, great, fantastic. uh, (laughs) cool. All right. So we're going to do this section of Isaiah over nine weeks, and it's it's one of the, I guess, the sections of Isaiah that's probably most well known unconsciously, uh, because there's so many. Verses that we might have heard, that we might recognize, out of context that actually are from this part of Isaiah's prophecy. so you know we all like sheep have gone astray, you do the baba do baba thing if you uh, you know the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all that's, that's isaiah 53 it's towards the end of the section. Um, th- those, a lot of those passages are actually from this part of Isaiah. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time. You've got an outline on the front page there that helps you kind of know where we're going. We can't cover the entire thing, every single verse. Uh, There's just too much in there to be able to do that in the time we have. So we're doing major sections, and we've got a reading plan. Hopefully, if people want to do that, that'll cover the bits that we we miss out uh, in the in-between. So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about Isaiah. We did Isaiah... 1 to 12, I think it was last year, the year before, and so we would have covered some of the background of the book of Isaiah. Um, the book of Isaiah itself, it covers some, in a particular period of history, and some of this is helpful to know what's going on in Isaiah. So I'm going to try and use the whiteboard and try and make this work. saw the Lord. I'm going to have to move this sort of recording to still hear me. That's right. It's the year that Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So 745 BC, that's roughly when that happened. Uh, the next important date is 715 BC where is when King Hezekiah becomes king. So remember, he's, he's, the, he's one of the major kings. There's four kings in, um, in Isaiah's prophecy. King Uzziah is the first one, and his, his death comes at the end of what was a very long, very stable, very prosperous reign. In a few ways, a bit like what we've seen with Queen Elizabeth recently. Um, you know, some people would have only ever known the prosperity of King Uzziah's reign. And then suddenly he dies. And then there's uh, an interim, a couple of interim kings. Things aren't going so well. And then King Hezekiah ascends the throne. And it's another one of those periods of stability. He seems like a king who really loves the Lord, uh, is concerned for right worship and, right, and justice in Israel amongst God's people. Everything's done Right. It's during King Hezekiah's reign, though, that there's a threat from this arising nation of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. And so in 722 BC, we have the northern kingdom falling. So when I say... um, Fall of Israel. I mean, the fall of the Northern Kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes up in the north, around Samaria and um, around the city of Samaria. Part of that whole movement of Assyria across the ancient Near East is also the uh, what we we might call the Assyrian siege crisis. So, in 701 BC, during Hezekiah's reign, um, call that the Assyrian siege. So the Assyrians actually march up to the gates of Jerusalem and they lay siege to Jerusalem and King Hezekiah is encouraged to surrender to the Assyrian king. And this is, this is the stuff that happens in the very middle of the book in chapters 36 and, 30, uh, 36 and 37. And King Hezekiah shows his medal, he trusts the Lord, he prays to God, and God delivers the southern kingdom from the Assyrian empire. And everything's kind of hunky-dory for a while um, until... Six uh, eighty seven 687 is when Hezekiah dies, and presumably this is kind of the the time of Isaiah's ministry. So he, his ministry kind of stretches, um, you know, for the eighty years between seven forty BC and six sixty BC, ish, somewhere around there. Um, When Hezekiah dies, he's succeeded by his son, a guy called Manasseh, um, where Hezekiah was a mostly faithful king. He had some issues, which we'll talk about in a moment. His son Manasseh was an absolute disaster, um, and tradition says that he soared Isaiah in half, and that's how Isaiah kind of ends his life. It's not in the Bible, but it's according to tradition. Um, And finally, a very important date is 586 B.C., because that's when the kingdom of Judah finally falls, not to Assyria, but to Babylon. So fall of Jerusalem. And that's important because of what we're going to talk about in a moment. So just to give you a sense of where historically uh, we're talking when we've got, this, um, when you've got the book of Isaiah in front of us. Move over here again. So keep in mind that there's you know there's almost 100 years between the death of Hezekiah and then the fall of Jerusalem. And all of these things are spoken about in the book of Isaiah itself. Now, just to say something about, there's a theory that's been around for a long time that Isaiah has not one but three different authors. And the reason for that is because of the material that you find in the book seems to be impossible to all be written by one guy, that one guy could know all of this stuff that stretches over you know, from 745 BC all the way to 786 BC and beyond. There might be an editor who helped to put all of Isaiah's stuff together in the end, but ultimately we're looking at one author, not three authors. So there's a belief that uh, verse one to 39 is one chapters one to 39 is one author, chapter 40 to 55 is another author, and 55 to 66 is another author. But uh, you're right, Rob. Um, But if we look across the whole book, we actually see it's got a very united theme. The point that Isaiah wants to drive home in his prophecy, whichever part of the book you're looking at, is that line that keeps getting repeated, Behold your God. So if you're wondering what Isaiah is about, it's about behold your God. Recognize who God is in all his aspects, in all parts of his character. And that's what he wants to drive home to us. Um, A particular problem when it comes to this idea of how can... Isaiah, just one one guy who was living in a particular period of history, um, know what was going to happen so far in advance is what we call the problem of Cyrus. And we're going to come up against this in this part of Isaiah. So in chapter 41, verse 21. uh, 41. If someone's got a Bible, would you flick that one up for us and perhaps read it? Um, yes, I'm oh, sorry, I'm just looking to see. Sorry, that is an incorrect reference. Sorry, 44. Should be. 44, 21 to 29. There is no 24. Oh sorry I've got an incorrect reference there can you can you do isaiah 44 um, 24 to 29 please yes please chapter 44 24 to 29 28 Right. You might as well keep going. Go into 45, verse 1. Great, thank you. Just just note there, so that's the end of 44 and the beginning of chapter 45. My apologies for the, the poor references there. Um, I was taking them from someone else's notes. Um The problem is Cyrus was the king of Babylon almost 170 years after the time that Isaiah would have pronounced this prophecy. So the question is, how could someone living at one time know the particular name of someone who was going to come almost 170 years later uh, to actually allow Israel to return from exile? And people have tried to solve this problem by saying, no, no, there was there was a later writer who wrote kind of, you know, an appendix to Isaiah's prophecy, original prophecy, and just kind of they all got lumped together. This comes down to what we believe about the nature of prophecy. Um, what's more likely that someone wrote under a pseudonym later, wrote things that were common in his own time? Or is it more likely that God actually told Isaiah beforehand what was going to happen for the sake of comforting his people? Um, And I think when it comes to biblical prophecy, the second option has to be the right one. So there's a quote there by Barry Webb, um, who writes a very helpful commentary on Isaiah. He says, The author is insistent that the Lord has proved himself to be the only true God by predicting the rise of Cyrus. He declared it in advance, even naming Cyrus, so that when the fulfillment came, there could be no mistake about who controlled history. I think that's something to bear in mind as we look at this section of Isaiah. It's the, the scope and the historical scope really does kind of balloon outwards. And part of the point is that God has got every uh, event and moment of history completely under control to the point where almost 170 years advance, he can say, this is the name of the guy who's going to send you back uh, to your, your country even before they've gone. Uh, Isn't our God a great God? So generous and so... Um, uh, his his ability to comfort his people. Okay, any questions so far? We've kind of done a bit of a big overview of Isaiah, what's going on historically at the time. Yes. Persian, yes. So Cyrus was a Persian, yes. Actually, yeah, thank you. That's a, a very good correction. So yes, he was a Persian who actually, he conquered the kingdom of Babylon and he allowed the Israelites to return to, or the Judeans to return to Judah. Thanks, Jim. Good correction there. Well, Cyrus a Jesus figure. Hmm. I'd have to think about that one. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. You start to read, because it's also, we'll talk about this in a moment, but because it's also in the part of Isaiah's prophecy that kind of prefigures the servant of the Lord, Sometimes, are we talking about Cyrus the servant, or are we talking about the suffering servant who's going to come later? And it's sometimes not clear, but I, th- I think there's a messianic element to what Cyrus is doing. Yeah. Mm. Very interesting. And it's worth kind of you know, thinking about these different things, of, of thinking through these, um, uh, these connections that you see across the whole book. I'm going to try and draw a picture now to give you an overview of how Isaiah fits together as a book. So if we plot Isaiah's prophecy a bit like that, Isaiah has got 66 chapters, which is interesting because the Bible's got 66 books. Draw draw connections where you want to. Um, And structurally, we can kind of divide Isaiah into three big parts. And so the three big parts are from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 35. And then in the middle here, we've got this section of chapter 36 and 37. I'm breaking these up for a reason. I'll explain that in a moment. And then 38 that middle section if, if you turn to that middle section in your, in your bible you'll find that where a lot of Isaiah is written in like a poetic layout those four chapters are now written in big block paragraphs and it's because the whole tone changes at that point it's more narrative it's more historical and it explains first of all chapter 36 and 37 is the Assyrian siege and, the, and God's deliverance of, of his people from the Assyrians Um, 38 and 39 39. is when, first of all, when Hezekiah gets sick and he prays to God, will you please deliver me from this illness? Uh, And God does. He says, right, I'll add 15 years to your life. And then that follows with the envoys from Babylon, this new kind of new kid on the block, this new empire on the block who comes to visit Jerusalem. And for some reason, Hezekiah thinks it's a good idea to go and show them around the temple and show them all the temple treasury and all the cool stuff they got in the temple. And and God says to him, because you've done that, well, they're going to come later and carry it all away. And Hezekiah's final response is, well, at least there's peace in my lifetime. Um, So there's a huge turning point in the middle of the book. Yes, God's people are delivered from the threat of Assyria, which kind of dominates the first half of the book. But then the Babylonian invasion and exile is prefigured in the, in the second part of that section so if we do it like this over the whole first section we've got the, um, the Assyrian threat and over the whole second section we've got the Babylonian threat And even though it still wouldn't happen for another 100 years, it was still put out there as this is what is going to happen. Now, that's not all that happens in the flow of the two, of the book. Because what you also get, and this, this just shows, I think, the amazing thing about God's prophecy, but also of how Isaiah communicates his message, is that we have some more themes going on. So, during the time of the Assyrian threat, the big theme, also judgment, uh, judgment of, of Israel's sin, but there's also a view here of the, um, the fallen creation. So if you, if you remember those chapters from 13 all the way through to about uh, to 22, you've got all these oracles against the different nations, uh, against Egypt and against Moab and everything. A lot of it is about judgment on sin. And it starts with chapter one, uh, calling the heavens and the earth to bear witness against God's judgment on His own people's sin. And so you've got judgment and fallen creation in the first half of the book, um, which kind of lies behind the immediate threat of the Assyrian invasion, the Assyrian, um, uh, the Assyrian military. The second half of the book, though, changes tack completely, and you end up with a whole theme of restoration. I'll do it like this rather restoration and new creation so if someone's got chapter 40 uh, open in front of them remember we've just finished chapter 39 the promise that God's people are going to be exiled in Babylon they're going to be taken away they're going to be conquered how does God start in 40 verse 1 can someone read it for us Thanks. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. How about that? So we've moved completely away from judgment. Um, And yes, the, the Babylonian exile will be judgment on God's people's sin. But beforehand, God's commitment to them and his faithfulness to them leads him to start with a word of comfort. To say, yes, this is going to happen, but trust me. It'll be okay. And so you have this movement then across the whole book from judgment to restoration. And over here we've got something else that happens because we kind of start with Jerusalem over here. Now the threats that exist towards the the physical city of Jerusalem. Then there's a whole movement as we move through. We end up with the new Jerusalem. because what god does is he doesn't just say right i'm going to look after my people but he's going to take his people into exile he's going to sustain them he's going to protect them he's going to keep them he's going to restore them he's then going to use them to reach the entire world Um, so it's not just physical jerusalem anymore it actually goes it shrinks down and it becomes much bigger than could ever been imagined so back in chapter 12 we've got this whole vision that just kind of pokes through there of the nation streaming to zion And that gets completely fulfilled in the kind of uh, Isianic sense in chapter 65 and 66 with the whole world knowing that God is God. Um, And so it's worth kind of knowing that as we move through Isaiah, as as we move into this big second section, we're we're expanding on a whole bunch of things. The exile hasn't happened yet. Uh, It's 100 years away. But God's people are being told now what to expect. They're being told now how to cope with it. They're being told now what God is like and will continue to be like even as he judges their sin and carries them through the whole experience of exile. And so that's going to shape what we do in the second section of Isaiah. Um, we're only doing chapters 40 to 55 this term, and that well, it kind of fits in here. 40 to 55 is a bit less about the whole experience of the new creation that kind of comes in 56 to 66 40 to 55 is a little bit more about the the experience of exile and knowing god in the experience of exile so as we move through that's kind of what we're going to expect to see more often and but part of that is also we have the servant songs that come up in this part of the book as well. So if you've ever heard about the servant songs uh, in Isaiah, this is the part of the book where those songs turn up. Um, one of the most famous servant songs, of course, is Isaiah 40, uh, 52, 13 to 53, 12. It's the one we read at Easter time, um, talking about... Uh... Sorry, I'm lost for words now. Can someone remind me what Isaiah 52, 13 says? As soon as we say it, we'll remember it. Yes, fifty-two thirteen onwards. It would be great if you could read that actually, Mark.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah, thanks. It it goes into 53 then and this is the he was despised and rejected by men man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That's that's the fourth servant song and it's very clearly it's looking forward to the Lord Jesus who would be the one to suffer on behalf of others, the the one whom the Lord chooses to be an atoning sacrifice for the sin of others. But you also get these other three servant songs. They turn up in... Fifty-four to nine, and four, as we've just done, is 50, fifty-two. Um, fifty-two, thirteen to fifty-three, twelve. Hopefully, you can see that. So 42 introduces the servant, and he's an interesting character. He suddenly kind of turns up, and the Lord says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. That's that's the first servant song, comes up in 52. Uh, the next one comes up in 49. Uh, 49, verse 1 to 7. Uh, listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. He said, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I've said I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. Now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up just the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved even of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Um, 50 verse four is the the next one. 50 verse four. The Lord has given me a tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens, He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught, Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me, therefore, I have not been disgraced. I have set my face face like a flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. Now, this is the servant, and you can already see the echoes of who the servant actually is. It's, it's, all these things kind of echo what Jesus would eventually do. And the reason for the servant is very important in, in Isaiah's prophecy. God had certain expectations of his people Israel. Uh, that they were going to be the light of the nations, that they were going to be the ones to bring God's justice to bear on the earth. And they failed spectacularly at doing all those things. But God's commitment to his covenant people stands to the point where he says, I'm going I'm to send a stand-in for you. I'm going to send a servant who will manage to do all those things that you failed to do so that I can still save you. And that's the role of the servant So the servant comes in to be the light to the nations, to be the one who upholds justice and righteousness, who is the light to the world, um, even to the point where the servant comes to suffer for sins that are not his own, which is really incredible. It just shows why sometimes people do call Isaiah the fifth gospel. Helps us understand Jesus when he gets there. Um, Any questions about that so far? No? All good? Great. I just want to show you one more cool thing about Isaiah. I'll flip this over. Um, So there's different ways of breaking down Isaiah. Another way of breaking down Isaiah is as with that section in the middle of 36 to 39 is to actually see six songs in Isaiah as as a whole so you've got 513 and 56 to 66 and the reason why this matters is because each of these sections each of the six sections that we've got over here um, we know that there's a break after each of those because all of them end with a song of praise to God and that actually reflects the whole structure of Isaiah as a whole, because by the time you get to 66, 65 and 66 themselves are a massive uh, song of praise to God, uh, which I think is kind of cool. So this becomes kind of uh, the, I guess the key, if it, was a, if it was a song, the key of Isaiah is, is a huge, uh, is, is praise and appreciation of who the Lord God is. And so for our purposes, we're going to be doing To be covering two of those songs. So 51.11 um, So 51.11 finishes by saying, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to, Z- come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So that's the song at the end of section four. Then... 5513 uh For you shall go out in joy and be led, this is from 12, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. The trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So those are the songs at the end of um, sections four and sections five. Um, And I guess if you grew up in Sunday school in the 90s, you might know both of those as, yeah, yeah, Vanessa's nodding. Um, well-known Sunday school songs. Cool. That's that's a bit of the structure behind Isaiah. Any questions about how Isaiah fits together as a whole? Kind of know what part of the book we're looking at. I know the youth group are doing something different, but uh, thanks for being here and being here with us. Cool. Um, before we take a break, just want to talk a little, bit about, a little bit about why we're doing this particular series of this term. And the goal is there um, over the page for you. The goal is that we know more and more who God is and what he's like so that we can relate properly to him and to the world around us. Uh, I think that's one of the big things that comes through in this section of Isaiah is what God is really like. And we see aspects of God's character in his comfort, his love, His commitment to his people, um, the way he seeks to, the way he will make things new, the way he will restore and redeem and reconcile. This is what God is like. It's really important that we actually lean into what God is like so we can relate to him properly and also that we can relate to the world around us properly as God's people. So, what I'd like you to do uh, to break things up a bit is if I said, Do you know God? how would you answer? And I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and tell them what your answer would be to that question and why. Do you know God? (laughs) All right, let's get some feedback. So if I had to say to you, do you know God? How would you respond? Maybe a couple of people want to share. Or share what their partner said or something. <laughs> yep, go for it, Mark. Uh yes. <laughs> good. That's a good answer, yeah. Mhm. Mhm. <laughs> yeah. Let me let me play devil's advocate for a moment and say, you know, you're talking to a non-Christian and they say, "Well, all you're talking about is reading a book." So, how can you really know God if you, what you're talking about is just reading a book? Fair enough. <laughs> sure. Yeah, d let me put you on the spot. I mean someone else is welcome to answer, but I think it's declared. Okay. That's what every point is. Every point on for uh X creation forty is file. True. Great. Yeah, so we got God revealed in creation. Yeah, God revealed in his word. Absolutely. And let me say, those things absolutely aren't wrong. Absolutely right. Uh, anyone else want to? Luke, do you want to? Yeah. I think, yeah, you, you key into something really important there, talking about how he's the living God and that he's still the same God today. I think that's key. Because we can, it, it can sometimes be difficult to tease apart what is knowing about God and knowing God. And obviously you need to know about God to know God. But then what does it actually mean to take that one step further into knowledge, not about God, but of God himself? Um, because it's easy to know a lot about God without knowing him. Um, God wants us to know him. I think that's very key. Uh, I've got Jeremiah 9, to 24 on the page there for you. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. You might even say the things we think we know, things we know. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the lord yes yeah yes thank you yeah yeah it's a no god we need god's spirit thank you yes absolutely right so i'm thinking uh, one corinthians chapter two i think definitely points us in that direction yep got to have the holy spirit involved yes um I think what we get there is just a reminder that there's something of knowing, it's sometimes hard to explain, um, not just knowing that God delights in these things, but knowing, um, <laughs> this is where language fails, not just knowing about the fact that he delights in these things, but actually knowing that God delights in these things, that these things make God happy. Um, you know, there's a sense in which we've got to what we know about God and what we read about God in the Bible, there's a sense in which we've got to engage in that so we can get to the point where we say, the Bible tells me this about God and I know it to be true because I've experienced that from God. Does that kind of make sense? It's it's something that we've got to kind of train our heads and our hearts to get into. And I, I know Mark said earlier about feelings can be very dangerous, and I think it's absolutely right. But there's an experiential aspect to knowing God that we we can sometimes be a little bit hesitant to to truly engage in. Yes. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Faith leads to conviction. Yeah. Um, uh, discipling someone at the moment, a new Christian, and they said to me the other day, I think they sent me a text, and we have been meeting and reading the Bible for a while, and they just said to me, they've just realized what it means that God loves them. Just kind of one day, just out the blue. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Because we've been talking about that, we've been reading parts of the Bible that talk about God loves me, you know, God so loved the world that he gave us... And at at some point, that had made the journey from the head down to the heart, and suddenly he didn't just know that God loves him, he knew that God loves him. And that was one of the coolest things. And I think for all of us, we've got to remember that that's where our knowledge of God has to take us, to a real experience of the fact that God is like what the Bible says he's like. Um... This is a fantastic book, and I think every Christian should at least once in their life read it. It's called Knowing God, by, written by G.I. Um Cool thing about it might look a bit thick. The cool thing about this book is that all the chapters were actually written as articles for a newspaper, so you can actually pick it up and just like dive in wherever. Pick a chapter and read it. It's not gonna you're not gonna lose the flow of the book. There is a bit of a flow to it, but this is a very, very, very good book that talks about this this side of things. Um, A couple of things he says in the book which are very helpful. He says, Knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. What happens is that the Almighty Creator, the Lord of Hosts, the great God before whom the nations are as a drop in a bucket, which comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15, comes to you and begins to talk to you through the words and truths of Holy Scripture. goes on a bit later to talk about what this knowing God involves he says holding together the various elements involved in this relationship as we've sketched it out we must say the knowing that knowing God involves first listening to God's word and receiving it as the holy spirit interprets it in application to oneself so what God's word means to me second noting God God's nature and character as his word and work reveal it third accepting his invitations and doing what he commands And fourth, recognizing and rejoicing in the love that he's shown and thus approaching you and drawing you into this divine fellowship. And I must say, one of the um, things that's really been clear to me the last few years is that third one, accepting his invitations and doing what he commands, is one of the best ways to actually know God, to do what he says we ought to do. Because sometimes we can go, oh, that's a bit much for me. Uh, You know, I don't really want to do things your way, God. But when I find that I do things his way, that's when I actually know what he's really like because he's faithful to what the Bible says he is. Um, we've spoken already, I think Mark raised it quite importantly, that knowing God involves necessarily knowing Jesus. So John 14 verse 7, he says to Philip, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Um, and I think that that dovetails of what Paul says in Philippians 3 8, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's the most important thing in Paul's life was to know Christ because in Christ he knew God. Um, knowing God involves Je- is knowing Jesus and I think you know in our study this term we've got to note then those servant songs particularly because they point very clearly to Jesus. This is my servant in whom I delight, says God. I want to know God who delights in his servant. We need to know the servant. Uh, And that leads us back to God and his character. Um, One important point of this as well, not just in our own relationship in God and knowing God, Consider Exodus thirty-four, twenty-nine. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he was talking with God. And I think another aspect of us having known God is that other people will recognize that we know God. Uh, you know, when we, when we face the world, do people see in us the reflection of God because we have been talking with God? Uh, Do we reflect God's character? Is it obvious to others that we know God? Maybe a last question before we take a break, just again in your pairs. How will knowing God better in Christ help us to relate better to the people he's put in our lives? So taking that relationship with God that we have, knowing him, how's that gonna help us as we relate to the world, to the people around us? Maybe spend a couple of minutes just talking about that with each other. Sorry, in your pairs, the, the pairs you had. yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yep. Either or. You decide which way, which way you want to go on that one. <laughs> what was the question? Uh, how, how will knowing God better help us relate to others? And simplify it like that. Okay. Let's just get some feedback from a couple of people before we take a break. So how does knowing God help us to relate better to others? Wants to kick us off. Yes, Luke. That's really good. Anyone else?
1: Yeah sure.
0: Mm. Yeah. Maybe one
1: more.
0: not yet. <laughs> as a growth strategy for you?
1: Mm. and uh, I experienced
0: that mm. and that church with that habit doesn't exist no. there you go wow it's so true the, if we base everything on us we tend towards those people that matter to us but if we reflect God we'll tend towards those people who matter to God which might not be the people we would necessarily associate with yeah Mm. right one more. I think Ben, you you had something you wanted to. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I hope all of that kind of gives you a bit of a taste for where we're heading in our groups this term, um, encourages you to think about this whole idea of knowing God. Um, I really encourage you, if, you, if you're if you looking for a good book to read at the moment, this could be it. There are three copies in the library, so don't feel you'll miss out if you don't get there today. Uh, grab two friends and read it with some friends. It's a, it's a good one. Um, a couple of helpful resources there. If you're looking for good resources to help pad out your prep for the studies, uh, the message of Isaiah... On Eagle's Wings by Barry Webb is a really, really good, uh, I guess, devotional stroke pastoral commentary on Isaiah. It covers the whole book, and it's really accessible and really, really insightful. I'm still reading through it in my morning devotions at the moment. It's the second time I'm going through it. It's, it's fantastic. Um, you can get it at Kurong. Uh, Teaching Isaiah by David Jackman's a bit more on not just what does the book say, but how do you actually teach it. So that's another really good one. And then if you prefer something you can just chuck on in the car and listen to on the way to work, Liam Golliger being interviewed by Nancy Guthrie on Isaiah part 2 help me teach the bible with Nancy Guthrie the TGC podcast. Just Google that and you will find that you can listen to it. It's a good hours interview on how to teach the second half of the book of Isaiah. Any questions about Isaiah or anything we've done so far? Mark, yes. Yep. It's all right. <laughs> Yes. Yep. I hmm Mm-hmm. on mm-hmm.
1: of mm
0: yeah yeah ashaban Nepal yeah uh, yeah i've definitely read about it yeah Yeah, that's right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So some <laughs> well. Yeah. Hmm. Th- is it the same steel where he talks about how he was unable to subdue Judah? Okay, I've read something where, yeah, there's a similar thing. They, they used to do this thing, like, you know, they conquer a bunch of people, put up a stone, and just, like, write, how, how cool am I? It's like a Facebook wall for, you know, back in the day. And he actually says specifically, but it, it's kind of spun to make it sound like, you know, it's not, you know, he, he tried and he had other, other things to do, but it's basically, like, the only one he couldn't conquer was Jerusalem. Isaiah 37. Ah. Okay. Oh yeah Assyrian Empire was a war machine. It was massive. yeah, that's right. It's incredible. There's a whole room at the British Museum in London which is, has got all the Assyrian artifacts. Uh, I got to walk through there once and see it. It is unreal. You actually see the the freezes from the palace walls in, in Nerva. Um, it's, it's amazing Okay, I didn't know that. Wow.
1: Hmm. Mm.
0: wow yes one of those yeah awesome thank you yeah yeah absolutely well take a five minute break or you can hang around with me and Mark and nerd out in the rabbit hole of Assyrian archaeology Uh, and we'll, we'll come back in five minutes and, do, um, and talk about the, how we're actually going to do the studies this term. Cool. All right. Let's uh, get back together for our last half hour. Last call for chockeys All right. Um, the way we're going to do the studies this term is not do a study guide like we've done previously. We've um, we've used the Swedish method a couple of terms ago, which was helpful and. W- I think it is helpful to learn different skills, different tools to read the Bible, both as a group, as, as leaders, and for our people in our groups to learn to read the Bible for themselves. So what we're going to do this term is use a framework called the COMA method. Some, some of you might have used the COMA method before. It's not designed to put you into a coma. Um, but it's a way of reading the Bible which works around a very simple acronym, C-O-M-A, for Context Observation, Meaning, and Application. Um, if you've ever looked at the book One-to-One Bible Reading by David Helm, it's got, it outlines the whole method in there. A uh, very helpful book. And it's an excellent framework for anyone's Bible reading because it helps us read, understand, and apply a Bible passage on its own terms uh, with this very easy-to-remember sequence. Now, what you'll do as a group leader is hopefully work through the Coma framework on your own as you prep each week. Um, and then, unlike the Swedish method that we did, you don't need to leave time during the study for people to work through it on their own. If they want to do it on their own as homework, that's great, um, but you'll just basically work through the questions during a study the way you would with a normal Bible study. It's just that the questions are more generic, and you'll have exactly the same questions every week for each passage. Um, you've got the passage, the the um, coma sheet over here. It's called Coma Questions for Prophetic Literature, because very helpfully they adapt the questions for each different genre of Bible text. So the context, are there any clues about the circumstances in which the prophecy was given or written? Are any places or people mentioned that you aren't familiar with and you might want to chase them up in earlier parts of the book or commentary or dictionary? Are other bits of the Old Testament mentioned or alluded to in the passage? What part of these memories play in the text? Uh, Then observation, are there repetitions or multiple? uh, Let me just say about the context. If sometimes the context stays the same, each week, so you might just want to briefly recap the context and move quite quickly through that. Maybe the first week you want to spend more time on the context, or if there's a big shift in what's happening, you want to spend a bit more time on the context to orientate where you are. But use this and use it flexibly. Observation, are there repetitions or multiple instances of similar ideas? Do these repetitions make a point or point to the structure? Paying attention to to when the prophet is speaking and when God is speaking What does the passage tell us about God's plans? What did it tell us about his character? What kind of human behavior is condemned or rewarded? What response is called for? What are the main points or points um, over the page? The meaning, are there specific instructions, commands given to the reader? Does this passion mention any consequences for not following God's commands? Uh, Does the text have a sense of expectation about something happening in the future? What is to be expected and when? How should this motivate action in the present? And does the passage point forward to Jesus? Is the gospel anticipated or foreshadowed in some way? And finally, application. How is your own situation similar to or different from those being addressed? How does this passage challenge or confirm your understanding? How does this passage lead you to trust God and his promises in Jesus? How does this passage call on you to change the way you live? And that template can be overlaid over every passage we're going to be studying this term. Um, hopefully to get a a good study out of that and something that people can know God and pick that knowledge up and run with it in their day-to-day lives with Christ. Any questions about the method? Mark, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I'll send you the link. We'll have copies um, near the board every week and we'll keep replenishing those and I'll make sure everyone's got the link. It'll come out in the Thursday email as well. So there'll be plenty of ways you can access it and... Don't feel you have to work through every single one of these questions every week. As a leader, you'll know what matters for the particular text you're on. As long as you work through the basic uh, cycles of context observation, meaning application, um, that'll be where your group needs to go. Okay. We're going to try some of this over the next uh, fifteen minutes, and what I'd like to do can we divide up into four groups? Um, maybe divide up into your groups first. So how many people have we got? Three, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I don't know. Three groups of three and one group of four. Will that work? Sorry, that doesn't work, does it? My my maths is terrible. Just just work out. Just find find yourselves in four groups. One group or two, maybe. Yeah, yeah, something like that. That would work. (laughs) Cool. All right, while you find your groups, what we're going to do is look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 to 8. So you can count this as preparation for next week. So make sure someone's got a Bible in your group. Rob's going to go on his own. That's great. Oh, good, good. He's got got a buddy. Great. So Isaiah chapter 40, first eight verses. Um, This group in front over here with uh, Des, Alicia, and Jem, you guys, if you can look at the context questions. Then Ben's group over there, if you guys can do the observation questions for the same passage, Um, Luke and Rob, if you guys can do the meaning questions, and Mark's group, if you guys can do the application questions for Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 to 8, and we'll get a bit of feedback on that. Maybe say 10 minutes, and then we'll get a bit of feedback on that. Just see how you go. Uh, Don't have to go too deep. 1 to 8, Isaiah 40. Brilliant idea, Ben. Thank you. Do you want to to come up here and do it? And then it's on the recording.
1: (laughs) Isaiah chapter 40, 1 to 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. cry. And I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever.
0: All right, take 10 minutes to work through your section, and then uh, we'll get some feedback on that. All right. Are we ready for a bit of feedback? I, guess we've had a, I know it's been a short stint, but enough to kind of, you know, see how it, how it kind of works. Let's start with the context, guys. What did you guys come up with on context? Yeah, so that's great. You're kind of seeing the whole biblical context as well, if it's in there really importantly. Yeah. Great. All right, who had observation? Ben's group. What did you guys pick up in terms of observation? (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. I mean, you point out there as well, if, if there's no response particularly called for, it's okay to move past that question because not every passage fits the entire framework. But yeah, so use your dis- discretion as you prepare. Um, meaning, Look at Rob, what did you guys have? yeah yeah seeing it within that whole biblical kind of context again yeah hmm That's great, yeah. And I mean, the, the gospel kind of foreshadowing here is very clear, like you said. And if I was prepping, I'd definitely go and look up where this passage is referenced in the New Testament. Maybe you can go and read about John the Baptist, those sorts of things. Um, look those up. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out there, and you guys have spotted it, is how key how the Gospels actually built in to the future comfort that God gives to the Babylonian exiles. It's like you know, look past the exile, look past all of that. The future comfort actually lies with Christ, which you know, which which is actually just incredible. Not just you'll come back to Jerusalem, but actually God's going to come to you. So yeah, huge gospel anticipation there. All right, application, um, Mark's group. Yeah, go for it. That's fine. mm That's great. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So I, I hope this given you a sense of seeing how the framework works. And again, you know, Bible study frameworks are made for man, not man for Bible study frameworks. So please feel free to be flexible with how you do it. You might want to use this as prep and then write your own questions for the actual study. Kind of whatever works um, to... But what we want to do is teach people and train people to have a structure for how do I actually read the Bible for myself, unpack it, not rush straight to what's God saying to me. What does it say there? What's what's going on? Um, how does it reference the gospel? We want to teach ourselves and others to kind of have a good good habits of reading the Bible and understanding it for ourselves. So that's that's the Coma method for you there, um, and that's kind of how we're going to do things this term. The first week might feel a bit like pulling teeth. Hopefully, it will get better as we go along. Um, the last five minutes just want to cover the last couple of things we're going to do. Um, we've got a daily reading plan which I think everyone should have picked up from the back table. Um, we'll hand these out on Sunday. Uh, if people want to do these that's fine. We're not going to you know require people to hand them in and sign them at the end or anything. Um, but I I've broken down the entirety of 40 to 55 into um, Bible readings for every day until the end of the series. So people can pick this up and follow with us and cover the whole of Isaiah 40 to 55 in the next nine weeks. And just encouraging people to get into good habits of Bible reading again, daily Bible readings, about five to six verses every day. And asking, you know, as you read, what have I learned about God today? Just very simple stuff. Um, And a memory verse for each week as well. So, you know, that's hopefully a tool. People can take that, use it, encourage your groups to use it if you'd like. Uh, And then finally... We mentioned the generosity project recap from the 20th of November. So that week, um, that that weekend, I'm away in Canberra. I'll probably we're going to probably have a guest preacher on the Sunday. Uh, I've got a presbytery meeting that weekend, so we thought use that week to do what the course told us to do, and that's in a few months, few weeks, kind of do a bit of a recap, follow up, health check. You know, because what the Generosity Project did over six weeks, you can't actually accomplish everything it was aiming at doing over six weeks because we're talking about heart change and change of habits, change of attitudes and things. So it'd be great to spend time in your group looking back a little bit and thinking, you know, how what's, what's changed since we talked about generosity together? Uh, what have I done? What have I not done? Uh, what's been hard? What's been easy? Having that kind of discussion together as your group. You can put that study that evening, that discussion together... In whatever way would suit you, whatever's most suitable for your group. But there is a suggested, uh, I guess, flow on the on on the page there for you. So definitely set the tone by picking a Bible reading from the Generosity Project. Um, it might be worthwhile spending a lot of time reviewing the those plans that we made at in, at the end of study session five and six. So maybe going back there and having people in your group share. Remember what was the, what was the plan um how's it been going those sorts of things um what have you learned through doing it what have you learned about yourself about god through the gospel uh is there any action you need to take now at this point in the things do you need to recommit to that or did it go really well do you need to like you know do something again or uh you know that's that's what we'd like to do that week um also use some of the, uh, the videos the real world stories videos it might help to generate discussion and uh Uh, generate things in your group those I think they used parts of these videos in each of the weekly videos but you can find them all at the link there and these are the expanded stories like the guy whose kid was in hospital uh, and the Christian family prayed for the the child Uh, those videos are all in expanded form on the website and remember to finish in prayer so that's going to be the week of the 20th of November just a bit of a breather in the Isaiah series for us to recap and see where we're at with generosity projects Any questions about any of that? Yes, Mark. (laughs) That's all right. I'm going to try and model a good approach to answering questions that I don't know the answer to and say, Mark, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm going to go and find out and I'll come back to you and I'll tell you what I find. Great. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to go and try and find out. And if you find out before me, tell me. That'd be great. Uh, Any other questions? Cool. All right. Um, Just a couple of housekeeping things um, as we move to a close. Some other things that are happening this term. The one is we've got another Sunday afternoon course starting.